This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast by the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Punar. I'm here today with Gil Hochberg to talk about her book, Becoming Palestine, Toward an Archival Imagination of the Future, published by the Duke University Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Gil, for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Fulia. Very happy to be here. So at the New Books Network, we'd like to start with learning about our guests' backgrounds. So could you tell us about your background, your biography? Sure. Um, well, it's always uh, a little bit difficult to know where to start, but um, why don't I start from the end and I'll go backwards. So I am currently, um, I'm currently a professor and chair of the Department of Middle East, South Asia, and African Studies at Columbia University. Um, and I've been here from 2017. And before that, I was a professor of comparative literature for 15 years at UCLA at Los Angeles. And before that, I uh, did my uh, PhD in comparative literature at UC Berkeley. Um, and that was uh, from 1995 to 2002. So that's my academic uh, background. Um, in terms of my uh, more personal or, you know, uh, background, I, um, I was born in the, uh, in the U.S., actually in, in North Carolina, in Chapel Hill. Um, but I um, spent most of my uh, most of my uh, life before I went to um, Berkeley at Israel. That's where I grew up and went to um, you know school and also did my uh, BA and my MA. So I would say that um, at this point of my life, I've lived most of my life, the beginning of it, and then from 25 on in the U.S., but then uh, in between I lived um, um, in Israel. So that's sort of my, my background. And the background, uh, I'm sure will uh, this will come up uh, later on in our conversation. But it's um, in many ways um, my work, which focuses on Palestine and Israel, um, does uh, very closely relate to my um, personal, you know, uh, uh, life. I don't really 
sort of have a, a kind of a, that distinction between um, the personal and the political or the activism part of my life and my uh, academic part of my life is they're all uh, they're all one for better or worse. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And your career sounds very impressive too, I must say. So let's talk about the book. But as you mentioned, um, this is a very interesting book, not only because it's content, but also because in the preface, you mentioned that while completing this book, you have actually realized that this book was indeed maybe a third installation of a trilogy about Palestine, as you had two previous books about the past and present, and this one is about the features. So could you tell us about this rather unplanned but sequential order of your three books on Palestine and this book's position among them? And you just mentioned that these all relate to your personal history too. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about this like sequence and this position. Sure, sure. Um, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Because um, indeed, you know, somebody might think that I, uh, of course, planned it and then just said that I didn't plan it, but I really didn't plan it. <laughs> um, and it did, um, it it became a trilogy, or I realized it was a trilogy, and it's really took me by surprise. So let me just give a little bit of background um, in terms of the previous books. So um, the first book I published is um, called In Spite of Partition, and it came out in 2007 with Princeton Press. Um, that book, uh, which was a revision, a, quite a radical revision of my um, dissertation, but it uh, was a work that um, really is preoccupied with the figure that I, uh, at the time and still, call the figure of the Arab Jew, by which I don't mean just the particular individuals who happen to be both Arabs and Jews or Mizrahi, as some people call them, but the kind of crossword of identities or these names, Arab and Jew. And the book focuses, that book focuses on literature written um in Hebrew, in Arabic, and in French. And it is um, sort of what it tries to do is traces these figures, the figure of the quote-unquote Arab and the figure of the quote-unquote Jew and the intersections between them. And my argument in that book is that there is actually a literary imagination, a very lively literary imagination in which the partition that has taken place at least since 1948 was the establishment of Israel um, on the historical land of Palestine, the partition between the imaginary um, division of Jew on one side, Arab on the other side, or Palestinian on one side, Jew on the other side, or Israeli on the other side, that there is a actually a literary imagination, a vast living literary imagination that rejects that by returning us to the to a, a, a lively past in which this partition didn't exist. Um, and that was this that was that uh, uh, project. Um, the next book that I uh, wrote, um, which is um, called a visual occupation, 
Um, and Visual Occupations um, is a book about violence and visibility in a conflict zone. And that uh, second book, well, first of all, it moves from mostly literature to mostly, uh, not all, but mostly visual, meaning film, photography, and visual art. But the, I would say that the temporal move was really the main one because it's um, a book that doesn't read for a legacy or a history. It was a book that was really, it was written, it came out in 2015, but I wrote it between 2010 to 2014. And I traveled several times to Palestine and Israel. I, I lived for a short while in uh, Abu Dis, um, which is basically not Israel nor Palestine because it's this enclave between the West Bank and the um, border of quote-unquote proper Jerusalem. So it's not East Jerusalem. It's not uh, West Bank. It's this, you know, um, no man's land. But um, uh, I, I, during that period, I, I moved mostly across. So I, in a way, I revisited the question of partition because I was physically moving across uh, in and out of the West Bank, in and out of East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, in and out of Tel Aviv and Jaffa, etc., and kind of wanting to experience that mobility um, while also acknowledging that different bodies and different identity cards allow for very, very different movements across those particular borders in this land. So in a way, um, the second book, which came out at Duke Press in 2015, is a book that I see mapping out a kind of um, maybe a, a, a visual politics of the present. It's much darker than the first book in the sense that it's not sort of reviving a hopeful past. It is a much more um, dark and realistic look at the inequalities that have to do with the division of what I call the visual field in Israel and Palestine. Uh, Who sees what, who sees who, and mostly who doesn't get to be seen and whose vision is restricted. Um, And so that was that... um, project. And it really was only when I finished, completely finished, in fact, um, very close to the state of the proofs of Becoming Palestine, this current book, that it suddenly occurred to me that this book, Becoming Palestine, is about primarily uh, a becoming and futurity and potentiality, and in that sense, really about the future And that's where I sort of realized that there really is a a trilogy here. Now, when I say there is a trilogy, I don't just mean, oh, one is about the past, one is about the present, one is about the future, but also that I think, and then maybe that, um, Fulia, maybe that ties back to your question about relating it, you know, to my own kind of um, self or, or political self, let's call it. And that's because... I think that I moved from a kind of position as a scholar, but also really as somebody who is very involved in um, activism uh, with relation to uh, Palestine and and, and, and my own um, sort of political views and inspirations and associations. And I think I myself also went through a kind of process of 
um, and I think it's not only mine, I think it's pretty common for this to happen of some kind of investment in the past as a source of hope, nostalgia, you could call it, but, you know, looking for a history and where you can find alternative models for a reality that is oppressive and deserves to be changed or ought to be changed as soon as possible, to then moving in the second book to a kind of um, um, maybe a, a, a harsh awakening. You know, this was after, uh, in 2014, the very, very massive and unforgettable attack, merciless attack on, on Gaza in 2014. Um, so a very uh, sort of sober, pessimistic look at how does this system work? How is it that this actually functions, that this kind of um, monstrosity functions? And that's what the second book looks like. It looks at really, it really does look at, particularly for me, what are the visual politics and the visual infrastructure that allows for the machine to work? It's not just, you know, there's a group of uh, some minds, mind, mind, masters and then everybody just follows and it works. No, you know, you have to have certain system. And it's a very Foucauldian book in that sense that it really does um, sort of assume that there, there, yes, there is a particular politics of vision and that's what um, allows and sustains this um, the situation in, 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 uh, in Palestine as a uh, situation of an ongoing military um, um, in, in violent, uh, very violent oppression and occupation. And then I think uh, two things happened. One is uh, I became increasingly more interested in visual arts. Um, I've always been interested in, in film and in photography, but I became really more interested in sort of uh, uh, and more equated with with art that is less mainstreamy, perhaps you could call it, you know, sort of like a more um, avant garde in some ways. Um, you know, kind of a uh, um, um, circulates in Biennale, perhaps, but not really massively circulates. And I've started so in in a way, I've started to notice something, and I think that what I've noticed also met a need that I had, which was a need for finding some kind of ability to hope for change. And when I re- started to recognize that there is a whole body of works that I didn't, you know, just, I didn't cram them in and created a book. I went through a long process of uh, following many artists, uh, mostly Palestinians, um, and realizing through my own interaction, that there is something, some kind of a trend that I was slowly becoming clear to me. And that trend was what I call this trend of becoming, this idea that there is a past, there is a present, and there is potentiality. And how we arrive at that potentiality is a whole other question, and I'm sure we will get to talk about it, but that that time, that temporality of the future is not fully just follows uh, or uh, it's not a cause and effect of past and present. It has its own logic. And that's what this book is really about. And I found um, hope that I don't think is um, a dreamy 
sort of naive, over-optimistic hope. Um, and I also think that all these artists that are that I are suggesting are working in this time of becoming share that. I don't think it's um, I, I I think it's a very reasonable mode, but it's one that requires us to respect the time of potentiality and becoming. Yeah. Um. So let's talk more about some of these specific themes and arguments in your book um, in Becoming Palestine. So let's talk about the archive. In the book, you challenge the quite common way of imagining the archive as this place where you just search for written documents and with those documents you reveal some kind of a truth, the facts about the past, and this truth is in a hierarchically higher position than the other truths. So can you explain what is unproductive here politically in this kind of an imagination of the archive and what kind of an archival imagination would you propose in this book as opposed to this rather unproductive one? Right. So um, I'll answer this by first saying that I do have a general argument here, of course, an engagement in the introduction about archives as such, Um and the sense of the place that, uh, as you said yourself, that archives tend to have, um, especially through the discipline of uh, history, which is considered um, still today, uh, his, uh, uh, kind of um, has, a, has a different place, I believe, uh, above many other disciplines in the humanities, is somehow closer to the truth. Um, so I do make some claims um, about that. And in that sense, I would say that uh, the book is, it, it, you know, to put it very bluntly, it's anti-historical, uh, but not anti-historical in the sense that I really think that, you know, it doesn't matter what happened. But I do think that um, the question of what happened or the narrative of what happened has to be placed alongside and not above other narratives, for example, about what could have happened or what can still happen. So that's my general um, argument. And then I would say that um, specifically uh, in the context of, um, of Palestine and the place of archives in Palestine and what I call the question of Palestine as the question of the archive, I think we then um, hit some very specific issues which have to do with a kind of almost oversaturation of archives and over-reliance on the archive. And what I mean by it is that because um, Palestine, as uh, Edward Said has told us, um, is a place that first and foremost is a question, right? The question of Palestine. And because there is a question here, not only about um, the matter of land ownership or about national self-determination, but also a question of narrative and who, um, what narrative is told. And because of that, there has been a very vivid and justifiable attempt to revive uh, uh, various archives that generate an alternative to the main dominant Zionist narrative, which has been a leading source of, uh, of narrative uh, in the West, but not only in the West, and much of it thanks to the production of archives and the destruction 
of many of the Palestinian archives. So many, many important um, and, and important projects have been uh, made thanks to thanks to this kind of um, of work. So when I uh, say we need to go beyond the, the the frenzy of finding historical documents in the archive, I do not dismiss that. What I do say, however, is that at this point and in this context, there is nothing left to be found, and that in fact the idea that anything still needs to be proven through history is in itself politically offensive and unproductive because there is a limit to how many times an atrocity needs to be proven and that the efforts actually need to move to a different place. So that's uh, sort of my my main uh, critique here. And then what I do suggest is that there is a different logic that one can find in what I call um, archives for the future, which is the production of archives as a um, uh, um, a means of discovering the present. Or another way to say it is to say that the present itself is the archive and that we need to approach the present as an archive rather than stop the present and, you know, to be literal, go to the basement and look for proofs in the archive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, and um, in terms of temporality, and before delving deeper um, to the book, so for our audience, can you explain what becoming means in your work? And maybe more importantly, what becoming entails when it's used together with Palestine? Yes, absolutely. Um, so in the most general term, I use the term becoming, uh, and I follow in that um, the work of uh, Deleuze, um, the French philosopher, who uh, himself makes a, uh, a distinction, which I find very, very productive, between history or historical investigation and becoming as a kind of uh, a political project that has to do not so much with what has been actualized, but what can still become beyond the scope of history. Um, and so when I turn to to becoming, um, what I'm uh, trying to suggest is that there is a reality that we know, and we know enough about it to know um uh, that there are two entities, they're called Israel and Palestine. Some people call it only Palestine, some people call it historical Palestine, some people call it only Israel. Um, we know all of that, and we know um, that there are different narratives about how these entities came about before and after uh, 1948. The question is, what does it mean to think about becoming Palestine? What does it mean about thinking about a uh, a kind of becoming that we can still imagine as 
an alternative reality. And I call it becoming Palestine. And the question would be then, which I presume would be your following question, why becoming Palestine necessarily? And for this, I I guess what I want to explain to listeners is that becoming Palestine is a kind of futurity that I um, can elaborate more through the uh, works of art that I trace, but it's a kind of futurity that I envision not as a becoming or going backwards, not let's go back to pre-1948 and reestablish a Palestine that either was or wasn't, and we can continue to argue about it, but it definitely is a becoming that will come out of what isn't now, meaning it is not the the current reality of partition, it is not the current reality of occupation, it is not Israel, it is a becoming of something that we cannot fully describe and we must not fully describe because we don't have the words to fully describe what is that will become, but we can trace it as a potentiality. And the details of that potentiality I really find in the various artworks that I analyze. Yeah, and this was going to be my next question. So in the book, you show how artists, uh, filmmakers, writers reimagine the very archive itself by engaging with, making, remaking plural archives. So can you tell us a bit about the relationship between becoming and this future-oriented archival imagination and what role does art play here for you? Yes, thank you. Um, So I would say first, I'll start with the end, that art plays a very, very central point for me and that I'm very blunt and open about it, that, you know, um, you some could say that, you know, it's a very modernist book in that sense because I really do hold to a certain belief in um, art and I do think that, you know, if people don't share that presupposition, they probably won't share many of uh, my my uh, suggestions. But um, I do think um, that art um, has a potential to precisely um, uh, explore places that um, history cannot explore. And that is this, this particular um, space of... Uh, of imagination, of becoming. And specifically, uh, you're very right to suggest that I relate. I mean, I think you, you capture something very important when you say that the um, the political work that I ascribe to the artworks that I look at does have to do with the creation of archive and the recirculation of archival material in new ways. And I would say that a very important term for me in this sense is citationality. I read the archive as a uh, as a work of citation and recitation. And I think that's what I really find remarkably productive. And also I, I, I was surprised myself to find this happening in such different ways, very, very different ways, which is, I think, part of the beauty of uh, reading these art works together is that each one of these artworks, which I think, or or the various artworks and films, 
which I all think very, very highly of. And um, let me, this is just a side note that for me, the work is first and foremost, a work of engaging with the art. And I say it in the book time and again, but I want to stress this, that I think that art thinks. So yes, I brought the arts together. Yes, I came out with an argument and yes, I did my own reading, but I really do find the work of thinking in the art and I'm thinking with it. I'm not, um, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a student of these artworks and these art um, and, and, and these artists. I think that uh, what's remarkable is that um, I ended up with very, very different works and very different uh, even, um, you know, mediums. It, it, I, I, I discuss dance, I discuss film, I discuss essay film, I discuss photography, um, literature, painting. But what I do find coming across all of them is this idea that when one finds an archive, and an archive could start with just a document, just a photograph, just a um, um, a stone. One has then the, put the 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 option to reinscribe that particular finding in another context, or at the same time, and and or reinscribe the present moment on that. Right, so say, um, a wall that carries um, traces and marks, a wall in uh, a building in Jaffa that cases traces and marks of the past, when reread into the current present setting, and then reframed, say, in an essay film that uh, brings together Israeli films with American films, but reinstalls figures that actually do not exist in the original footage, but are placed from the present moment on the desk of the director who is directing it at his desk in Berlin, you understand that you are then dealing with an archive in becoming. This is a living archive. This is an archive that makes itself and doesn't stop. It is not an archive that says, open this folder, you will find the answers, then close it and return to the present. A very different kind of archive. This is a breathing and living archive because it is an archive that, yes, it does in some cases, um, even specifically returns to historical documents that are placed in even national uh, archives, such as in the case of um, um, Jamana Mana's uh, film, um, 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 where she returns to um, the Israeli National Archive and specifically looks at particular uh, archives and then revisits those archives through making her own film that has its own retracing of musical traces that are found in the original archive, and then she traces it in the present. So you already have two layers, two temporal layers on the same archive. I hope this is making sense. I'm yeah, definitely. Really. No, no, definitely. And um, the artist whose works you think with, like, as you mentioned, Jumana Menas, uh, Kemal El-Jafari's, Best El Abbas, Farah Salas. So, all of their works, um, they they show a like a diversion from the archive, but also using the archive, um, but to imagine a diff- 
a different potentiality to imagine the otherwise, the yet to come, as you state in the book too. So these are very interesting. And there are some commonalities among them, of course, because they rewrite, expand, and change the archival imagination with almost a need, a desire to think about, to build new, alternative, different futures. So maybe this is because you're such a good writer, but you also mentioned it. Um, it seemed to me that your book derived from what these works meant for you instead of you having a pre-established goal of your own while looking at these works. And considering that most of your analysis are on very recent contemporary works. So I was curious to know what these commonalities um, and the very existence of your book could tell us about this particular moment in time. So could you tell us if there is something specific about this moment in the Palestinian imaginative culture that seems to be bringing about this various works of these artists and your own book too? Right. Thank you. No, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I you know, without sounding too um, generalized, I would say that I do think there is something that is uh, very contemporary about this moment um, that is shared by all these artists and many others, uh, Palestinian artists. And I think it has to do with um, a different position vis-a-vis what the role of the artist is, but not just the artist, even just what the, what, what, what is the role of anybody who imagines and cares about Palestine, by which I mean, at the very bare minimum, reaching a level of political justice that, um, that, um, that is long overdue. And I think that has to do with the fact that the difference is that there were many, many decades in which really there was one role. And that was, again, to turn to Edward Said, that was to claim the narrative, to make it be heard, to make Palestine visible, to make the narrative legitimable, you know, to make it noticeable, to make it be able to even not just compete, but even just exist in the face of the very, very, very powerful Zionist narrative. And I don't want to go back into why is it that the Zionist narrative is so, so um, strong. In fact, one of the chapters in the book, which talks about Larissa Sansur's um, sci-fi um, films, I think I think that Larissa's work actually engages with that, even though, you know, I don't think she would say, Mike, I really am uh, questioning my work, questions what, what, what it is. But I think there is a lot in her sci-fi work that actually does try to say that there, there, it actually in some ways makes sense that the Zionist narrative has made so much um, um progress or so much, you know, had had so much uh, leg and it, not just because of the history that we all know of, of the Holocaust, etc., but also uh, because of the very, very, um, the, the specific historical conditions, but also because of a specific history that has to do with the place of the past, the present, the future, archaeology and theology, right? So I don't want to get into all of that, which 
may some of your your listeners may know more about some less but in the face of a movement to quote unquote bring Jews back to their promised land in the face of a growing evangelist movement in the face of a post holocaust world in the face of a um, the strongest theological narrative um, that we still have um, it's not a surprise that you know Zionism has succeeded but it has because it had such a success it has become an almost impossibility for uh, Palestinians to uh, make their narrative heard and that was the case for a very 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 long time some would argue it still is the case but we have to acknowledge the fact that even, even the New York Times is now changed its reporting. Now, if the New York Times has changed its reporting, it means that I'm not saying that people are listening to the Palestinian narratives, but it is no longer hidden. And I think in that sense, there's two things that happen. One, Palestinian artists, I think, don't think that it is their job anymore to uh, simply prove that Palestinians exist or simply prove that the Palestinian narrative has legs. Beyond that, I think that there is a almost a rebellion against that idea. Again, it has to do with the question that I said at the beginning, how many times does the oppressed need to prove that they are oppressed? And I think that turning against that and turning into actually having the right to imagine and to think of the future and also to create a different kind of art. Yes, I am going to sound very blunt, but yes, to have the right. And again, Larissa Sansur, I think, makes a very um, settled, but she her iconography always makes a kind of ironic touch because there is always a kind of a, an olive tree that she watered, that her character waters, or in the, her futuristic um, Palestine built in a closed building, you see the um, Al-Aqsa Dome. So I think in some ways, all of these artists are always also saying, we also have the right to imagine otherwise, to move on, and to open the space not just towards the past and to proving time and again that one, we exist, two, we have suffered, three, we are rebelling, but no. There is a space that I call the, the, the right to imagine and the right to respect imagination. I think that's what is um, demanded in these works. And I think that, uh, yes, times have changed and um, the world has changed in, in part in, in its uh, growing recognition of the Palestinian cause. And um, I think many of these uh, artists who, you know, for the most part are, are young and uh, are um, also very, you know, they're, 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 they're international in the sense that they're in and out of the space of, of Palestine. And I think there is a strong desire to join the world in terms of, a, I, I mean it in, the, in, in a level of a, a poetic joining. joining, joining those who have the right to dream, to have the right to have hope, to have the right to imagine.
Yeah, thank you. So um, I was also curious, and this will be a bit of a diversion from the content of the book, and it will be more like a speculation. But um, how do we protect um, an anti-colonial, future-oriented archival imagination from potential appropriation or depoliticization by Uh, the colonizers, because they are often known with their capacity to appropriate, to contain, to depoliticize these radical engagements. So, I mean, of course, you don't have to respond to this because this is not like about the content of the book. But I was so curious about your opinion. Yeah, um, you know, I haven't thought about it before, but I guess for me, appropriation uh, is not a big Fear, I would say, because you know, appropriation. Um, in order for appropriation to work, it really requires um, a real appropriation, and you know, it's sort of like if one, if let's say, uh, you know, the colonizer fully swallows the colonized. They'll have a stomachache, uh, and I don't think there is a way for the colonized out of it either. And I think that's a lot of actually what this work is trying to show, and what some of these artists actually demonstrate. If you think of, um, if you think of, um, um, especially perhaps, um, sorry, um, uh, Kamal uh, Al Jafari's uh, um, project. You know, you have a Palestinian artist, a filmmaker, uh, born, raised in Jaffa, who decides to make films about his hometown, um, but actually almost all the visual material he can find, if not all, photographs, films, cinematography, are um, from the Israeli cinematic archive or uh, cinematography and American films, right? So the approach that he takes, I think, is one of devouring or like, you know, you can call it, you know, a deappropriation. He is, you know, so here is Jaffa fully appropriated, right? Not just appropriated as a city. In fact, the most extreme, I would say that the, the most extreme case is revealed um, when he describes the way in which in some of the uh, American and Israeli films, not only they take place in Jaffa, and then the Palestinian residents are either evacuated or they're asked to, you know, serve as some background in the film. Um, And other people, actors come in there and that even, you know, whenever they need uh, some kind of an American scene taking place in Beirut, it's easier to film uh, in Israel. So they film it in Gaza, and uh, not in Gaza, sorry, in Jaffa, and say it's in Beirut. But of all of these, I think the most extreme case is the case in which the city itself is described in one of the uh, American action films as actually bombed in reality bombing buildings, bombing buildings in the city, and then shooting it, right? So shooting the film by bombing the buildings in the city. So I can't think of a more cruel 
a vicious type of cynical appropriation, right? A destruction of a city in order to appropriate it as a scene in, in American or Israeli film. But um, Al-Jafari's response to this is to actually return to those particular films, to those, those very films, and use those scenes in his own films. He makes his films by sort of, you know, tailoring scenes from these films. That's his last film uh, uh, recollection is almost all made of these uh, patching of these scenes, scene after scene from these, from these appropriations, right? So, uh, and, 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 and in a way, what I argue in that film is that what he does by then also adding um, the, uh, uh, characters that he studied very well from the characters that he scratches and finds one missing Palestinian character in a window, or he finds a photo of his uncle and he places it inside the the old film. So he places a, a, a film on top, I'm sorry, a, a film on top of a film reinscribing what has been erased back into the the, um, the archive, I think what you get here is a kind of um, archive of the present or the future that goes beyond the question of appropriation because the appropriation is then reappropriated and reappropriated to a level where you can say that the citation and the citationality leaves the appropriator, the colonizer, at complete loss. Because there is absolutely, when I say, you know, if they swallow it up, they will have a stomachache, the ghosts come back and they hunt. And in Al-Jafari's films, they sp- they really sort of appear on the screen, right? So, yes, there is an appropriation, but it's not a timeless appropriation. It's, 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 there is a price to it. You know, it, it, it it's going to be reappropriated and re-ascribed and recited etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think that would be my answer that appropriation can only be dangerous if we really think that it will stop at that act right that there will be uh that, you know let's give the most um blunt example uh you know how if you go to a supermarket in the us you get um um what is it called? Like everything is called something Israeli, right? So you have Israeli salad, Israeli falafel, Israeli um, couscous, Israeli, you know. Um, so, but but it doesn't end there, right? I mean that 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 that's it's that is an act of appropriation, but it's an act of appropriation that I think is not that that is that that remains very very fragile. Or maybe I'm you know maybe I'm overtly optimistic here, but I don't think that at the end of the day, falafel will go down in history as an Israeli product. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're showing with examples and your great answer, by the way, thank you so much for it, that the the power of imagining futures actually. So not imagining just things will end with appropriation, everything failed, not imagining like that, but still having this like circulation and still having this expansion sort of well gil this conversation has been amazing for me and i really enjoyed the book i'm sure our audience will love it as well but we have taken a lot of your time so um let's talk about the projects that you're currently working on or you plan to work on 
Oh, thank you. Um, well, um, at the moment, I am uh, starting a project that I'm not sure yet where it will lend me to, but I am. I, I feel it. I have myself avoided, and I feel that many people continue to avoid the uncomfortable place of looking at the real role of the imagination of Christian evangelist theology in the current state of um, the Zionist project. Um, I want and or I'm looking at um, some text, but mostly actually um, art and um, looking at the role of this imagination. Um, and I, you know, it's very, very early on, so I don't want to sort of overstate where I'm at with it, but I would say that it's really, my, my main argument is that it's not that, you know, once upon a time there was theology, it was in the 19th century, and now we're, you know, in this secular time, and we're really talking just about national conflict. It's far from it. It's, this reality is held by um, a long-lasting project that, you know, you can call it archaeology, you know, whatever you want, you know, finding remnants of um, of uh, the Second Temple, etc. But it is at core a Christian theological project, and it remains so. So that's my, that's my current <laughs> project. Wow. That sounds very interesting. We will certainly be looking forward to your next that project. Will take some time. That will take some time. <laughs> we will we will still be looking forward to this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gil, for your time, for joining us for this amazing book and for answering all these questions. And the pleasure is certainly mine to host you here. I'm your host, Fulia Punaj. This discussion of Becoming Palestine toward an archival imagination of the future, published by the Duke University Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you so much for listening.